Welcome to episode 6 of The Plot Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. The Plot is a co-production of Odessa Steps Magazine and the When It Was Cool Network. It's Halloween month here at the network, and so we are going to do as Carl asked and do something spooky related. For the first show, we're going to look at some 1960s TV spy shows and how they handled the supernatural or at least things that pretended to be the supernatural. First up is The Man from UNCLE. The, one of the first American spy shows that debuted in 1964. UNCLE, if you did not know, stands for the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. They were afraid of calling it United Nations because they did not want to get any flight from the real United Nations. So they came up with UNCLE. And of course, UNCLE also sounds like Uncle Sam. Uncle's villains, who you may or may not have heard of before, are called Thrush. What does Thrush stand for, you ask? Well, get ready for this one. Thrush stands for the technological hierarchy for the removal of undesirables and the subjugation of humanity. Yeah, imagine seeing that on your business card. Anyway, Thrush, in storyline, was originally founded by Professor... Sebastian Moran, who was the second lieutenant of Professor Moriarty in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, they eventually got rid of that, but that was the original concept. Anyway, this episode is from Season 2, and it is called The Batcave Affair. Now, there are no superheroes, but there is a guy with a cape. The episode starts with our hero, Napoleon Solo, played by Robert Vaughn, Somewhere out in the country where he's going to meet... The episode starts with our hero, Napoleon Solo, played by Robert Vaughn. Somewhere in the country where he meets up with a young girl named Clemency McGill, who's being tested for having extrasensory perception. She is doing all the usual things like figuring out cards from across the room and things like that. And suddenly, she not only does she know Napoleon's name... But she asks about Mr. Kiriakin and what he's doing in Spain, and he might be in trouble. Napoleon doesn't believe her because Ilya Kiriakin, David McCallum, Napoleon's partner, is supposed to be in Sweden. But it turns out Ilya really is in Spain, and he's being threatened by thrush agents and finds himself on the wrong end of a bull in the middle of a Madrid bullring. He soon escapes... And thanks to a clue given to him by Clemency, he makes his way to a bar in Seville where he is captured by Thrush and our main bad guy, 
the very flamboyantly dressed Count Zark, played by the great Martin Landau. <laughs> it's good to have you here, Mr. Kuriak. Though I fancy you would have been better off in the North Country instead of opening up other people's mail. You have something of ours. Something I rather hope you would return. And what might that be? Come now, sir. Let us not play childish games. I'm referring to a list of numbers which you were foolish enough to intercept. Oh, those. <laughs> You're an amusing chap, Mr. Kuriak. I shall be very, very sorry to... Oh, do forgive me. I am Zark. Count Ladislaus Zark. You have heard of me, of course. Well, there's something familiar about you, but uh, just what it is escapes me for the moment. You're shut up, my ego! I have fantasies of uncle issuing orders. Get Zark at any price! And here you haven't even heard of me. Well, I... I can take comfort in the fact that after Thursday, you would have heard of me. <laughs> if you had lived that long. Thursday. Then you must be involved in Operation Night Flight. <laughs> My dear boy, I am Operation Night Flight in a very real sense. I see. I am director of flight research for Thrush. It was I who dreamed up the possibility. I who proved that it was feasible. And I who shall put it into operation. Which brings me back to you and the reason why you were here. Forgive me for having digressed. The paper, please, Mr. Koryakin. Search him. Mr. Zark. Count Zark! Listen, I have uh, no desire to be manhandled by your friend here, so... Watch him! I think that's uh, what you're looking for. You gave us quite a start, Mr. Kuriak. It was quite unintentional, I assure you. Yes, uh, it appears to be the original. Thank you, Mr. Kuriak. May I ask a question? Yes, please do. If you are so anxious to get the letter, why did you try to have me killed? Oh, you mean Madrid, the bullring. <laughs> that was a dreadful mistake. My men were supposed to bring you back here, but misunderstood. Terribly sorry you were inconvenienced. It happens. Yes, my men were a bit premature. But now I think the time has finally come. Goodbye, dear chap. <laughs> I'm sorry you will not be here Thursday. You would have enjoyed night flight. <laughs> This being a podcast, some things need explaining. Yes, he is dressed like Dracula. Yes, he has very pale makeup. No, he does not have fangs. Yes, he is cacking maniacally, chewing scenery like nobody's business. And yes, he is using the voice that would win him an Oscar playing Bell Lugosi 30 years later when he made Ed Wood. You also can't see that in addition to the generic henchmen waving guns, he has 
a thug who is very large, looks vaguely Frankenstein-y, although is wearing a big red bow tie. We did not hear the part earlier in the episode where Napoleon and Mr. Waverly, who is the director of Uncle, discuss that Operation Night Flight is a thrush plan to disrupt the world's airports, and they want $1 billion to call it off. What is Operation Night Flight? I'm not going to make you guess on this one. Operation Night Flight, as you might imagine, given the Count Zark gimmick, involves bats. Zark is an electronics genius and has figured out a way, you'll love one of these convoluted 1960s sci-fi plots, he has messed with the bat's ra- internal radar, and it will jam all of the airport radars around the world. He is going to release millions and millions of bats into the air, thwarting all of the airports around the world, if Thrush does not get its money. Needless to say, Thrush in the end does not get its money. Napoleon and Ila and Clemency save the day, although we are briefly given... A red herring that Clemency actually works for Thrush, but it turns out she is a simple dupe. She has been wearing a hair bracelet, which, again, 1960s convoluted spy technology. Uh, Her hair braid projects thoughts into her head, so Thrush has been feeding her all of this information the entire time. Only it turns out at the end, not surprisingly that she tells Napoleon where the secret hideout is. Uh, it's in a castle in Transylvania. This is where they are. They're in a castle in Transylvania. Of course they are. She tells him which room his hideout is in, even though it's hidden. And he says, are, did they feed you this information? And she says, no, honey. I lost my hair comb while we were escaping. I think I really do have a gift. So they save the day. Napoleon gets the girl. Count Zark, though, apparently escapes... Sadly, he does not make a return to the show. This was an episode in the middle of 1966, and Martin Landau will soon become Roland Hand when Mission Impossible debuts later that year. Up next, another favorite 60s spy show. is the Avengers. That's the Steed and Peel Avengers, not the Marvel Avengers. The Avengers, of course, is a long was a long-running British spy show that started in 1961 and then ran until 1969 and then briefly came back in the mid-70s. We will not mention the Ray Fiennes Uma Thurman movie here. We're going to look at a Season 5 episode of of the Avengers, which was during the Diana Rigg Emma Peel years, an episode entitled Never Never Say Die. The episode begins with a guy driving down an English road 
fiddling with his radio, which suddenly starts crackling, and all of a sudden, as he's trying to fiddle with the radio, a very large man lumbers into the road, and the man unfortunately hits him, throwing him 20 feet in the air. We cut to the emergency room, and the doctor pronounces him dead on arrival. But then, he gets up and walks out, causing the man who hit him to faint. We cut to Mrs. Fields' apartment, and she's watching what appears to be an episode of her own television show, a black-and-white episode involving the Cybernauts, who were these mechanical men bent on crime, invented by all people, Peter Cushing. Remember that? That'll become uh, also metatextual in a couple minutes. But then Steed appears on the television and says, Mrs. Peel, we're needed. Where's the body? There isn't one. Nobody? Nobody. There's always a body. There was. Ah. But this one got up and walked away. I can confirm that. Oh, Mrs. Peel, this is Dr. James, the usual resident. It's a fact, Mrs. Peel. There was no pulse, heartbeat, for respiration. Eyes cold to the touch, pupils completely dilated. All the symptoms of death? Yes. Mind you, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. Doctor, is it all right if I go now? Do you feel fit enough to drive? Oh, fine, yes. I admit he did shaken up a little bit, but now that I know he's alive again, he's alive. Not when I examined him. Well, uh, alive or not, uh, He's up and about against me. That's all that matters. How severe were the man's injuries? The car hit him head on. He was thrown 20 feet. If I hadn't seen him, I'd have said his chances were nil. Well, if he's hurt that badly, he can't have gone far. Steed is right. He's not far away. In fact, the poor guy drives away from the hospital and soon hits the same guy again. Same lumbering guy in the highway, same weird thing happening to his car radio. We see an ambulance pull up, but uh, it's kind of suspicious. A bunch of orderlies get up, carry the guy in, put him in the back of the ambulance, and drive off. Just as we see another ambulance drive up, this one contains the doctor, Steed, and Mrs. Peel, wondering where the body has gone. The man soon escapes the other ambulance and begins swathing a path of destruction across the countryside, always smashing people's radios, including a man picnicking and two soldiers out on maneuvers who unfortunately run into this giant. Forward patrol. Yes, sir. What's your position? Uh, we're heading north, sir. On the terrain line. Pretty tough, sir, but uh, we're plowing on. Good show. Keep it up, then. Yes, sir. That's initiative. All right, you can stop now. I said... Hold this. Hold this! Shocked, that's it. What happened? You won't believe it. Try us. 
we were on maneuvers and we stopped for a rest. Just for a minute, you know. You were using the radio? Yes, sir. And then this man appears. A big man? Very big? Yes, sir. He slammed into him and then he came at me, so I shot him. I had to. It, it was self-defense. He came at me like a mad thing. I had to shoot him. Well, where was this? Where have you left him? I told you you wouldn't believe me. He wasn't hurt. He came right at me. I could see the bullet holes in his chest. He took a whole magazine and he wasn't hurt. And then he smashed the radio. And then? He walked away. Where did he go? Into the forest. Steed goes traipsing around the forest and finds a cabin that is apparently owned by a Dr. Stone. While he is searching the house, the big man shows up, thrashes Steed about the head and shoulders, throwing him around the room, and is only saved by the arrival of the men in white suits, who manage to subdue him using some cargo netting and carrying him off, putting him in an ambulance. Steed follows them, and it turns out they work for the Ministry of Technology. Steed, M-O-T-N-R-U stands for... Ministry of Technology, Neoteric Research Unit. It's a good guess. I've seen the place. It's about a mile or so from here. And never mind that. What else did you find out about it? Not a thing. Neoteric, that means modern, futuristic, advanced. The Ministry wouldn't say a word about it. What goes on in there, Doctor? It's a research establishment. Run by a man named Stone, that's all I know. Stone? Professor Frank N. Stone. I found this at his cottage. See George Eccles, aerial cottage, serious interference. Worth following up. And I'll see the professor. Yes, if you didn't see it coming, Dr. Frank N. Stone. So you can only imagine who this lumbering big man is. Steed goes to the ministry building to posing as a security expert ahead of some visiting politicians that are coming there soon. He meets with... Yes, if you didn't see it coming, the doctor's name is Frank N. Stone. So, you may have a guess what the big man is, but uh, don't get ahead of yourselves. Steed goes to the ministry building posing as a security expert because there are some politicians coming to tour it and he meets with Dr. Penrose, who he recognizes as the man leading the guys in the white suits that subdued the big man. Soon, he says he only reports to one man, and that's Dr. Stone, and he won't give Steed any more information. And suddenly, there's a buzzer. He says, oh, Dr. Stone is here. The door opens, and yes, Dr. Stone is the big man. And not only is it Dr. Stone... It's Christopher Lee playing Dr. Frankenstone. What is Dr. Frankenstone doing in his lab? He's building duplicates. But please don't call them robots. You're going to transfer people's brain patterns into these robots. Thus allowing brilliant people to survive long after death. So... He takes Steed eventually into the back and shows them duplicates. And why, yes, there is indeed a Dr. Stone duplicate. From there, things get a little confusing. Uh, we won't give it away here. We're going to uh, leave some surprises to the end. But it is not everything that you expect. Of course, Steed and Mrs. Peel win the day along with the help of the lady doctor they had encountered earlier and we get your usual happy ending complete with steed and mrs peel sitting around her apartment watching television 
with a nice 1965 television remote, the kind that has a wire attached to the television. Up next, our third and final show. Yes, our third and final show is Get Smart, the spy spoof created by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry, starring Don Adams as Agent 86 and Barbara Feldon as Agent 99. We're going to be looking at a first season episode entitled Weekend Vampire, not to be confused with Vampire Weekend. Yes, searching for this episode online is a pain in the behind. Max and Agent 52 apparently are on stakeout somewhere, and they're playing chess to kill the time. Max gets up to get them some coffee. A mysterious melody is heard, and suddenly Agent 52 is dead. But what's that? He has two puncture marks in his neck. What could it be? Three agents murdered. 23, 49, and now 52 right here in control. In my own laboratory. Well, close to home, isn't it, Professor Sontag? All right, Max, tell me exactly what happened. Well, first of all, Chief, he moved his pawn to his queen three. Then I moved my knight to my vicious four. No, Max, I mean, did he do anything suspicious? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, he did, Chief. He left his queen unguarded. <laughs> Max, will you forget the game? An agent has been murdered, the third control agent in as many weeks, and always on the weekend. Can you think of any reason why it should always be the weekend? Well, maybe the killer works during the week. <laughs> what troubles me most is that all the victims have the same suspicious marks. Marks? What marks, Chief? Look at his neck. Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Two tiny puncture marks about an inch apart. Chief, you don't suppose... Of course I don't. All that publicity about vampires is just the newspaper's way of boosting circulation. I guess you're right, Chief. It's incredible to think of a vampire abroad in the 20th century. It's incredible in any century, Max. Vampires are a myth. What do you think, Professor Sontag? Well, there are boundaries to the scope of scientific knowledge. It is said, you know... When a vampire strikes, it leaves two marks very much like these on the neck. That's ridiculous, Professor Sontag. That's an old wives' tale. You're right, Max. Of course I'm right, Chief. Werewolves leave marks on the neck. Vampires go right for the throat. <laughs> there are no such things as vampires. Right, Chief. Well, it's a good thing we're all sensible, civilized men who don't believe in a lot of superstitious nonsense. Right. Max! Walk under that. <laughs> if he didn't guess, that was Max almost walking underneath a ladder before the chief stopped him. Soon, Max and 99 are in Professor Sontag's laboratory, and they learn that Sontag's former mentor, Dr. Drago, has been disgraced, but he's also very suspicious. And so Max and 99 
go to investigate him. They pose as a newlywed couple whose car broke down and thus are seeking shelter from the storm at Dr. Drago's residence. Uh, good evening. Is this the honeymoon motel? No, it is not. This is my home. I'm Dr. Santorotus Drago. Oh, uh, good evening, Doctor. I'm uh, uh, Maxwell Smart, and this is my wife, Mrs. Smart. Uh, we're on our honeymoon, and our car broke down. I uh, don't suppose you could put us up for the night. My privacy is most important to me. Besides, I don't think you would be comfortable here. On the contrary, Doctor, I think this is a charming place. So fresh and inviting. I think it's a perfect place to spend a honeymoon. I don't suppose you'd consider selling it. This house is 200 years old. You said that many weird and terrible things have happened here. There are frightening noises at night. The people nearby say that the tortured spirits of the dead still inhabit these rooms. Is there anything else you'd like to know? Is it near a school? Stop growling, dear. We can always hire a tutor. <laughs> oh, hi there. Hugo cannot answer you, Mr. Smart. Unfortunately, he has lost the power of speech. What did he say? He said, unfortunately, I have lost the power of speech. <laughs> and now, if you will excuse me... I shall call a garage and see for your car. You say it broke down on the road. Which one is it? Uh, it's a red and black coupe. No, no, I mean which road is it? The road right outside your castle, Doctor. Max and 99 investigate the castle, but of course are soon caught and learn the secret to Drago's plans. Yes, he's not really a vampire. And what was that mysterious sound, you may ask? It was a two-barreled flute that shoots ice poison pellets. Yes, the hoary old cliche of the ice bullet rears his head in this episode of Get Smart. So the flute shoots two darts that melt, leaving the puncture wounds on the neck, making people think it's a vampire. But of course it's not. Uh, they are soon rescued by Dr. Sontag, the control scientist who is Drago's former assistant, who has also been secretly investigating Drago. So we end up all as well that ends well. Of course, there's a wonderful comedy bit where Max is showing the chief the flute, which he says has now been unarmed. Max plays the tomb and shoots out two poison darts that just narrowly missed the chief. End of the episode. So no actual horror monsters in these three spy shows. But we're going to be back soon with another episode Another British show, this one from the late 90s, that does involve real actual vampires versus the super science of the times. In fact, you may say it's basically the X-Files plus a blade versus vampires. That's the great Channel 4 show, Ultraviolet, starring Jack Davenport, Susanna Harker, and one of in one of his very first roles, Idris Elba. That'll be the next show that we examine here for Halloween on When It Was Cool. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show.